We are in John chapter 2. I don't know if we're going to get through all of John chapter 2, but we're going to start at the beginning of John chapter 2. I freaked the kids out this morning. What are we doing today? I said, we're going to a wedding. Going to a wedding? That's where we're going. Jesus goes to a wedding. Um, it's kind of cool. John is not chronological. He doesn't tell stuff in order. He is not trying to, to pay attention to what happened before this and what happened after that. But he does lay down these little, these little hints of things. On the third day, there's a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And so that immediately lets us know it was the third day. It's in the same context as the John the Baptist saying, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And those guys come along and they're like, Rabbi, where do you live? All of this is just real tight, tight and close together kind of thing. That's, that's why that's a big deal. So they go to this wedding. And it was customary for a rabbi that wherever a rabbi went, he would bring his disciples with him. Because the whole point of a disciple is to learn how to be just like the rabbi. Not, not to get smart, unless the rabbi is really smart. Not to be really good at public debate, unless that rabbi is really good at public debate. The whole point was to become a carbon copy of that rabbi. And the whole point of that was that that rabbi was a carbon copy of his rabbi. And that rabbi was a carbon copy of his rabbi. And that carbon copy, that, yeah, you know, on and on and on to Moses. With the idea being that basically when you talk to a rabbi, you're talking to a guy that's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of Moses. The original. And so that's why they weren't into coming up with new ideas. They weren't into, you know, let's let's explore some new concept. It was, no, dude, you are going to memorize and act like and be just like me. Because I am learned how to be just like my rabbi. So they would go with him anywhere. Uh, they would go. There's a, a guy I was reading and he saw... A rabbi in modern day Israel go into the bathroom and all of his disciples follow him into the bathroom. And you start to think through, okay, that's kind of weird. But you start to think through, okay, if you're trying to stay by this guy and learn everything from him, you take the bathroom break whenever you get a chance. Because if he's out having this awesome conversation and you're trying to learn from him and you didn't go to the bathroom when he went to the bathroom, you're not going to get a chance, right? It's even deeper than that. They would want to stay close in case the rabbi started to pray while he's washing his hands or whatever. They want to pray the exact same way. I mean, that's, that's how intent they are on staying close to their rabbi, going along with him. So, Jesus comes to this wedding. If Jesus is regarded as a rabbi, it would be no surprise at all for him to bring a bunch of people with him. I think I talked about this when we were talking about King David. If all of a sudden Donald Trump showed up last Thursday in a Toyota Camry at the Ford Center, people would freak out, right? Something is wrong. Something bad 
something bad is happening because you expect him to have the secret service and the beast and the air force one and all of that around him and with him. So some of this, by Jesus just showing up and he has disciples with him. If anybody's paying attention at this wedding and if anybody knows who Jesus is, or if they don't know who Jesus is, when they see him with disciples, they know he's a rabbi. Okay. So there's some, there's some context there that it doesn't mention. It doesn't say, but, but you would know just by sight that this guy is a rabbi because he's got disciples. He's, um, Imagine a youth pastor showing up with, with three or four middle school, high school kids that aren't his children, but they're all kind of hanging around him. That's, that's kind of what this would look like. So they show up. I'm just going to read. I'm going to read what happened, and then we're going to go back and talk about it. The third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So you know the story. We've heard the story. We make jokes about the story. We, but I, I want us to really slow down and think through what's going on. There's an old an old rabbinical, the, the rabbis used to say, where there's no wine, there's no joy. And so in the context of thinking wine equals joy, throughout the Psalms, through, throughout um, you know, the, the Old Testament law, joy and wine went together. When you had wine, that meant the harvest was good. That meant that, meant that life was good. You, you've got some savings if you've, got a, if you've got wine to drink, then, then you are all right. All is good. And here is a wedding, which should be one of the most joyful, happiest of things. These people would party for seven days, and the whole city would be invited. And they've run out of wine. Running out of wine at a wedding was a punishable offense by law. You could go to jail. How dare you have a wedding without wine? What have you done? Because it represents joy. It is God's joy. It is the joy of the people. And you're out. So isn't it funny the role Mary plays in all of this, right? Because it mentions that she was invited and it mentions that Jesus was invited. Mary must have had some sort of role at this thing. 
because she, you would not just blab out to everybody. Like, remember the commercials about we're out of Colombian coffee and like the whole train backs up? You do not announce that you're out of wine at a wedding. Okay? That, that's like, you know, the shrimp is food poisoned. You would not say that. You would not announce it at the wedding. You would keep it. But Mary knows about it. Not only that, but Mary is in some sort of a position that she talks to the servants and the servants listen to her. So servants wouldn't just willy-nilly listen to anybody at the wedding. They would, you know, if you ever, if you ever get to be a best man or a bridesmaid or a maid of honor, like you have a job, right? You have responsibility. It is on. You are paying attention. You don't just listen to any willy-nilly person. Everything is about the bride and the groom. That's how these servants would have been. Even if they were servant class, even if they were slaves, you know, whatever, they wouldn't just willy-nilly listen to any lady that would say, do whatever this rabbi tells you to do. But they do. And she says that. So they get these stone jars. Stone jars were there for cleansing. This is basically holy water. This is reserved water. It couldn't be drawn from a cistern. It had to be drawn from a spring because you couldn't use cistern rain water, runoff water for ceremonial cleansing. The, the, the archaeologists have found stone jars like this that, like I always pictured clay pots, but this sort of thing would have been stone turned on a lathe and carved. So these are like heavy, heavy, heavy stone jars for ceremonial cleansing. Ceremonial cleansing, super important. You have to wash your hands. You have to wash off your face before you eat. You might have something unclean on you. You don't want to make yourself unclean, especially at a wedding. So it's a big deal not that, that you would invite all of these people to the party, but then you would also give them a means to ceremonially cleanse themselves so they could really enjoy the party. Imagine if we all had to crawl to a wedding on our hands and feet through dust, and you show up at the wedding, and they serve just the most awesome food ever, and your hands are filthy, and you're like, I don't, I don't want to eat this, because I, 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 I can't get clean, because I crawled up the side of this hill. That, that just gives us like 1% of an idea of what, how important the ceremonial cleansing is at a wedding, okay? Because you're, you're making yourself holy. You're making yourself ceremonially, spiritually clean with this water. Then Jesus says to her, and we all have these horrible translations that say, Woman, what does this have to do with me? And in American culture, you never say woman to a woman, right? That's just wrong. No, might be true, not culturally correct. This, that is not how Jesus was talking. Um, it, was, it, was, you know, it was a term of endearment. It was a loving, it was a loving thing, like mama. Mama, why, why are you involved in me in this? My hour has not yet come. Remember when Jesus is at the, at the, talking to the woman at the well? And the woman at the well is saying all these things, like... Um, I have to get water. And Jesus says, 
if you only knew who you were talking to, you could ask and you would receive water that you would never be thirsty again. The lady is like super practical and Jesus is like crazy out there cosmic, right? Talking about big things. The lady realizes, oh, we want to talk about issues and religion. You Jews worship on this mountain. Samaritans worship on this mountain. Right? Uh, You want to get into religious controversy. I can do religious controversy. Jesus brings it right back down. Super practical. Worship in spirit and truth. That's the real way to worship. It doesn't matter where you are. It's that you're really worshiping in spirit and in truth. So here, they're out of joy. The joy has run dry. And Mary says they're out of joy. And Jesus knows in his head that a day is going to come where he is going to bring joy so mightily that there will be nothing but joy. He's going to bring joy so strong that there's going to be nothing but joy for all. Just boom, joy. And he says, woman, my time hasn't come yet. It's not time for me to bring the joy. She persists. Do whatever he tells you. By the way, if you are signing cards for people and you want to put an awesome Bible verse on the card to make everybody wonder, you can't do much better than John 2, 5. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Right? She says, do whatever he tells you. The servants look at him like, who are you? What do you got for us? There's six stone water jars. They need a lot of water jars because there's a lot of people there and there's going to be a lot of ceremonial cleansing. Jesus tells them, go fill them up, bring them back. Note, Jesus is not doing this publicly. He is totally, the only people that know what's going on are the servants, are the lowest class of people at this party. How radical is that? What, I mean, that the character of Jesus would be that at a huge, rich wedding, the people that he is the closest to and the nearest to are the waiters and the waitresses, the servants, the staff, the people that aren't there to celebrate. They're there because they have to be there and they're working. Jesus is the closest to them. He's the one that they interact with. He interacts with the most. He sends them to fill them up with water. They fill them up to the fullest, which is really exciting. And I'm not going to get into like Protestant work ethic stuff here. But man, if Jesus told you to go fill up a water jar, would you fill it half full? Come on. No. Fill that sucker up. So they fill it up all the way full. They bring it back. And he says to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The thing about who gets to do that, the the master of the feast is the guy that's in charge of how much wine there is. That's also the guy that if they run out of wine, he's the one going to jail. He is the boss. He's the master of the feast. And if you're one of his hirelings, are you going to scoop out a cup from the ceremonial cleansing water and take it up to him and say, hey, boss, how's this wine? Because you're going to get fired, like, at the best, right? And, I mean, 
ceremonial cleansing water is going to be clean because it has to come from a spring and it can't be from a cistern and it can't be from runoff. But still, it's not going to be wine. It's going to be a little nasty. It's the whole, um, when you order water and you get Sprite and you take a drink and you what is this? Imagine the, the, the moment of, of fear, the moment of excitement. Because on the one hand, what if the guy knew it was wine? What if the guy was the servant? He goes and gets the water. Jesus says, take it to the master of the banquet. And he scoops it out. And oh my gosh, this guy, this rabbi just turned water into wine. That the only kind of thing that's ever happened like that would be, you know, maybe when the plagues came and the whole Nile River turned into blood. Maybe when manna fell from heaven and now the ceremonial water that we all wash ourselves with, we don't have any. There's none. It's wine. He takes it up to the guy. Draw some out. Take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine and didn't know where it came from, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves a good This could go two different ways, too. On the one hand, it could be secret. Dude, everybody always serves the good wine first and lets everybody get drunk, but you save good wine for the end. If you've ever been in Middle Eastern culture, you know that that's not how it happened. It happened something like this. Bridegroom, behold! And he would make this big toast and he would carry on because they're all liquored up and they're all flamboyant and they're celebrating this great party. And he would say across everybody, everyone serves the good wine first to get everybody drunk, but you save the best for last. And they would make a spectacle of it. And it would be, oh my gosh, it would go on. He'd give a big long speech. Now the servants know something amazing has happened. Something what, this is just unbelievable. The disciples, it says the disciples, the, the, um, you kept, this the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. His disciples were there. They knew he was a rabbi. He, they knew he was a teacher. Andrew and Nathaniel and Peter had had conversations. This might be the one like Moses. This might be the Messiah. But this guy that they're following, this guy that they're with, just took how many jars? Six jars filled with 20 or 30 gallons of water. All right, so it's Labor Day weekend. So just for you, I did some math. As you're out this Labor Day weekend, you got your cans. I I just want you to picture at this wedding, Jesus brings about 2,026 cans of beer. 2,020, and this is not like Sterling. This is like really good beer. I don't even know what that would be. But imagine a party a huge party and there's no beer and how everybody would feel dude you better not let people find out that you just you're throwing this big huge labor day thing 
for the whole neighborhood and you have no beer. And then this guy says, go check the pool. And you walk over to the pool and it is full of ice and it is full of 2,000 cans of super expensive, incredible beer. How does that even happen? Culturally speaking, that's kind of the equivalent of what happened. Just magnitude. What? But he also brought the joy. There's also this whole underlying thing that wine equals joy. And that Jesus just took the thing that under the law makes you a little bit clean so you can eat. And he turned that law, he turned that ceremonial cleansing water of the law into pure joy. That there's no more, because what's going to happen? No one can be ceremonially clean. There's no way. If anybody shows up to this wedding right now and comes in off the street, they cannot make themselves clean to enjoy the party. See, Jesus abolished the law. He wiped out the curse of the law. If there was ever any way for you to make yourself clean before God, it's gone and it's been replaced with joy. It has been irrevocably replaced. It's been replaced with so much joy that you can dump it out on the floor and still have plenty to drink. It has been so replaced with joy. That's why he said, he didn't say, take, okay, you guys got six jars, and we need to keep these three for ceremonial cleansing. Take these three and go fill them up with wine. Or go fill them up with water and I'll turn that into wine. No, it's gone. The, the ceremonial work of being cleansed of your sin by the law is completely gone. That's how he manifested his glory. To his disciples. How can I man how can I show these guys the full glory of God, the full glory of the Father taking away sin? Oh, I know. I'm gonna ruin the whole rest of the day for ceremonial cleansing. And I'm gonna bring so much joy, nobody's gonna know what to do with this. I mean, imagine at the end of a potluck. All of a sudden, some dude shows up with a big old fattened calf, barbecued, smoked, cooked, pulled pork, the whole deal. We're all stuffed out of our minds. They've all, they've all drunk too much. They're not going to drink all this wine. That's how Jesus shows, manifests his glory. I'm going to bring you so much joy I'm going to bring so much joy to your life, you're not even going to know what to do with it. You won't have containers for it. I'm going to blow the law so out of... Oh, yes. So, anyway. He manifested His glory. He showed up. He brought more joy than anybody could ever imagine. And He blew away the law. So then, the Passover is at hand. Oh, they stayed there for a couple days. They stayed in Canaan, Galilee, because a wedding would go on for a couple days. And um, 
I think we talked before about wine. Wine wasn't like a, a recreational alcohol drink. It was the thing you had to drink because juice was only juice for about five hours. And then it would go bad. So they stay at this wedding all week. They stay up there. Then the Passover happens. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, the money changers sitting there, making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. He's pretty upset. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus goes to the temple and the temple was huge. They had this big outer court where all the Gentiles were supposed to be because they can't get into where the Jewish men are and the Jewish men are in their section because they can't get to be where the Levites are and the Levites are in their special section because they can't get in to where the sons of Aaron are and the sons of Aaron are in their special section because they can't get into the Holy of Holies where only one person could go one day, one time a year. So it's all these divisions. So the court of the Gentiles is kind of like the cry room. It's kind of like where where people that are visitors can come and they can worship God, but they aren't in the middle of everything. And in the middle of that, all these merchants set up shops. And so if a Gentile came from Egypt or further away and they came and they wanted to worship the one true God, they would be trying to worship the one true God and right next to him would be a dude trying to sell him a cow and sheep and pigeons. Total crazy ruckus. They would have money changers. You can't give money to the temple that has Caesar's picture on it because that's a graven image that's like an idol. And so you have to use the special temple money that doesn't have a face on it So you have to come in and you have to swap and do a money exchange thing. And you always lose money in the money exchange. And so that's all going on. And Jesus is like, this is where people are supposed to be worshiping God. And they've turned it into a marketplace. This this is used a lot, and, and rightfully so, to talk about how we should deal with anger. How Christians should handle anger. We should make whips and we should go run people off. No. Look at what Jesus did. He didn't just burst into a rage. It would take time to make that whip. He didn't just react. He took some time to consider what was going on. He also, he didn't act outside of his authority in this. There's a lot of times in our anger we do stuff that we don't have the authority to do, which is what causes all kinds of problems, right? You know, there's kids fighting in my park last night. And I didn't have the authority to go over and grab them and make them stop fighting each other. 
I, I don't have the authority to put my hands on somebody else's kids that are fighting each other. So I acted within the authority that I have, and I called the police. Jesus didn't act outside of his authority. He took some time to think through what he was angry about and what he could do about that anger. He wasn't just mindlessly angry. I think it's also interesting, Jesus didn't advertise his anger. He, there's no teaching. He, there's all these different times of teaching that Jesus had. Jesus did not have a time of teaching about this before he went and acted on it. He didn't carry on, oh, those money changers, those money changers are worthless. I hate those pigeon salesmen. Have you ever met a pigeon salesman that you liked? No. He didn't do that. He, he thought about a concrete course of action he could take, and he took it. You also get the impression that even though he ran all these people out and he yelled at them, he didn't attack them. He says, take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. You dirtbags. He didn't say that. He engaged with them in a way that they could legitimately say, by what authority are you doing this? Why are you doing this? What, what's going on? Why are you acting like this? They could really ask him that. And they did. Why do you show us the sign? What, what, what are you doing here? I think we could learn a lot from that. It's not that he didn't do anything. He didn't sit by and watch this horrible stuff happen. But he calculated, what's a fruitful thing I could do? Well, I have authority here. This is my father's house. I have zeal for it. He's like, I mean, it says zeal for my father's house will consume me. He was, he was, this was not a light thing. And he contemplated and he acted on it. Here's what I think is really interesting about John. John's the only one that puts this event this early in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke, we know, tells the gospel in order. They all put this at the end. Like, this is almost during Holy Week. Why does John put it here? And I want to I propose something kind of crazy. That it's part of the water into wine that John is comparing and contrasting, here are poor servants that don't have joy. And Jesus, with all of his zeal and all of his power, manifests his glory by wiping out the ceremonial cleansing of sin and bringing joy in abundance. And here are the religious leaders. That are, that are making money and profiting off of people's desire to grow, draw close to God. And Jesus is not going to tolerate them. And he is not going to mess around with them. And he is going to make a whip. He, the dude was a carpenter. Okay, Some translations, he could have been a stone worker. So when he makes a whip, he makes a good one. 
And he goes in and he, this, this area is like as big as a city park. And if you've ever been somewhere where somebody, you know, maybe somebody had a medical emergency and they're way over here and everybody that's around is like, oh, what's going on over there? Or somebody, you know, gets belligerent or gets loud and gets upsetting and there's a big crowd and everybody's like, what's going on over there? Jesus was that guy. And he cleared the place. And he cleared the place and you can you can imagine the stampede of animals and people and everybody getting running out. And then Jesus just standing at the door like who wants to come back in? Who wants to make my father's house a den of robbers? Who wants who wants it? So to this one group, he brings joy, joy, incredible amounts of joy. And to the other group, he brings judgment. He brings the law that that this isn't a place of mercantilism. This is a place of prayer. So leave your cash at the door. Leave your cow outside. You're going to come in here and pray. I'm not going to whip you. But if you, um, was it Nehemiah? Nehemiah makes this threat. and He's like, you guys want to come shopping on the Sabbath? You can, but I'm going to unload on you. I forget what the exact verse is, but it's like, he's going to beat them up. Jesus brings incredible joy. And he shows up and wipes out the law for this group of people that were in need of joy. For these people that had run out of joy. For these people that, that listened to him and did whatever he said. But to this group that was trying to control him and try to keep him out and to try to profit and abuse others with religion, he had whips and zeal and anger. And that was how that ended. And everybody was, oh, I, think, I think that's what John's bringing. I think John, that's why he puts it in this weird spot. Because that is what Jesus is going to bring ultimately, Right? He's going to bring joy that is just inconceivable levels of joy. And to others, he's going to bring judgment and he's going to bring the whip and people are going to be running for their lives to stampede to escape it. So on that happy note, um, as you continue to read through John, just know that Everything Jesus says and everything that Jesus does is all pointing us to see what the Father is like. That's what it said back in John chapter 1. Everything Jesus is going to say and do is going to show us the Father. No, no one, no one, no thing. You know, all the heavens declare the glory of God, but no one has ever shown us what God is like, like Jesus has. And so that's why we can, we can look to Him and trust Him and... Uh, pay attention to it. All right, let's pray. Lord, you are holy and awesome. We praise your holy name, Lord. We exalt you. We lift you up as the the most important thing in our lives, that there's nothing else that we want more, that there's nothing else that we want to do more or think more about than you, Jesus. And I pray that you would just drive this zeal and passion into our souls And then you would overwhelm us with your joy. 
that you took away our sins, that you took away any hope of a ceremonial cleansing, and that you just gave us nothing but joy in its place. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So church, as you go out this week, look for ways that the ceremonial cleansing of the law has been wiped away with joy. God bless you guys.